Funding gaps and staffing shortages in Wisconsin have caused emergency medical services to become unreliable, especially in rural areas. Wisconsin's EMS agencies are calling it a system in crisis, with a critical strain on providers that will only increase when adverse winter weather conditions arrive. Welcome to Route 51. I'm Shereen Seward. Today, we will hear all about the challenges faced by emergency medical service providers and how those challenges are putting communities at risk throughout Wisconsin. With us today are two guests to share their perspective on the situation and discuss possible solutions moving forward. Alan DeYoung is Executive Director of the Wisconsin EMS Association. Alan, welcome. Tell us about yourself. Tell us about your background. Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me. So uh, my background is I'm the Executive Director of the Wisconsin EMS Association. We've actually been around for 50 years this year. Uh, we represent around 7,000 EMS providers in about 350 departments within our state. And to give that some perspective, that is literally about half of the active providers in our state, uh, as well as about half of the active departments we have, um, just around that, about that amount. Uh, we provide education, we provide advocacy, we you know uh, weigh in on policy changes, um, as well as provide benefits to our members and try to support all of our EMS departments in our state. Great. Well, we're glad that you're here today to talk about everything that's going on. Also today with us is James Small. He is the Outreach Manager of the Wisconsin Office of Rural Health. James, thank you for joining us too. So where are you from? What brought you into this role? So I grew up in Washington Island up in Northern Door County. Started in EMS there 30 years ago um, when I was still in high school and um, have worked in public safety ever since. I've also, um, am a law enforcement officer and a firefighter, served um, 11 years of my career was spent as a combined protective services chief, where I served as both a police chief and a fire chief for a municipality. Um, retired from this and took the position at the Office of Rural Health, where my job is to figure out how to help make our EMS response more sustainable, reliable, and how do we improve that system quality and make that statewide? So, um, how long have you been in this particular role? Since July of 2022, when this program launched. Okay. All right. Well, when you call 911, you expect an ambulance to show up and show up quickly. But I know in some communities around the state, particularly rural ones, there is some growing concern that emergency services won't be there to answer calls and certainly won't be there quickly. How real is the fear that you could call 911 and nobody comes? Is that, does that happen, James? Yes, um, that's happening across the state in multiple regions. Um, we conducted a study in the fall of last year, looking at what's happening with EMS in Wisconsin, what's the reliability and sustainability of our system look like. In that study, we demonstrated that in 2022, there was 10 different communities in Wisconsin where someone called 911 requesting an ambulance and an ambulance never even made it to the call. Now that's excluding situations where they call 911 and there's no ambulance available in their community. And then it goes into the mutual aid system and then the neighboring community can't answer the call and so on. There's many, many instances where that ambulance response time might be in excess of an hour, hour and a half or more to get an ambulance on scene to, to treat that patient. So there is, there is multiple regions in the state, not just in the Northwoods. There's a commonly held belief that this is a Northern Wisconsin problem. That is not true. We can demonstrate in our research that it's impacting all seven regions of the state. 
it's something that we need to address promptly with some very deliberate actions to improve that. Alan, let's go to you. Take me through what happens when a call comes in and what happens if that area is not staffed? I mean, how does that work going to a neighboring community and who responds? Sure. Yeah. So obviously 911 goes to your local dispatch uh, and that's who pages out typically the primary department. And that's what we see your local community hopefully responding. Uh, but just as James mentioned, the mutual aid piece of this, which is when a neighboring department comes in and helps out, uh, this, this happens time and time again. And they kind of go down a list, truly. It's like you have your primary department, you have your mutual aid backup, and then additional backups after that. Um, but once they've exhausted typically three different departments, there's really no recourse. And we've had those dispatch calls where they're like, I don't have anybody to respond from three different departments. And this is in a, it could be in any region. Um, and, and even to give you an exact example of this happening, I know his, uh, the Office of Rural Health study was just this past year. Uh, I was at a countywide EMS meeting uh, just this past week. And there was one example of a department that was paged for a possible stroke patient. Uh, no response from that department, again, due to staffing, and the neighboring department was paged. They were obviously much further away, going to take a lot longer to get there. The family, actually, of the patient became so frustrated with the response time that they drove themselves to the hospital. And that neighboring department, at, at minimum, they arrived at the hospital just to help out, but it just Again, relying on this mutual aid or relying on your neighbors, that's going to extend the response time tremendously. So that's the, but that's kind of what's typically happening across our state is, you know, mutual aid is being used more and more than ever before. I'm curious about the impact of mutual aid on those communities too. Let's say, uh, Wausau is paged to help, um, you know, some, a rural community. Are there situations then in Wausau where, uh, where people are waiting longer or unable to get the, the care they need as quickly as they need it? I mean, what's the impact there? James, what do you say about that? Yeah, and that's a very significant issue. One of the findings in our study was that 78% of the services in our state in 2022 did a mutual aid call to a neighbor because they weren't didn't have a staff primary ambulance. So your first out available ambulance, we're not talking about times when you have surge, when your your call volume exceeds what your expectation is for that. We're talking about primary first out staffed ambulance because almost half of our ambulance services aren't staffed 24 seven, 365 anymore. So that's becoming that issue. So when that first, when that service isn't staffed, and now that neighboring service comes in, it can, can create that domino effect, too, that ends up with a call not being answered because if City A doesn't have an ambulance in service, so City B takes that, that call for them, and then City B has a call, now City C might take that call, and you're creating this domino effect depending on how that call volume distribution comes in. And in several of the regions that we're, we're studying, we're seeing very significant amounts of mutual aid where it looks like there's very high call volumes going on. But when it comes down to it, the number of concurrent calls happening in any jurisdiction might be pretty low. So like a second call for service is low, but their first their first ambulance is out trying to go and take that um, that call for their neighbor. And then that's creating a mutual aid effect on other ones. So it's creating these high vo call volumes 
in the dispatch data, but there isn't really that many more calls, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah, it does. Boy, that's, yeah, what a situation. I mean, staffing for EMS means life and death for people. And I, I remember reading in the Cap Times last year that EMS is considered an essential service, a, a so-called essential service, only in towns and not mm -hmm. anywhere else. Is that still the case? That That is. Um, in Wisconsin law, towns are required. Towns shall provide ambulance service. Cities and villages may provide ambulance service. So they're authorized to provide it, but they're not mandated to provide it. That being said, I don't know that we've demonstrated that there's any city or village who's choosing not to provide the service. I think in one way, shape, or form, every one of them is um, contracting for service, providing it themselves, or some, some variation of that. So I think every local government is making an effort to provide the service in some, in some way. But sometimes we're putting them in these impossible positions. So we need to think about in our rural communities, the makeup of our elected bodies. So they're citizens of the community who want to help the community move forward with things. So it's your, your regular citizens and they become elected because they're an adult non-felon and they're eligible to be elected. They become elected to try to help. And then they're given no training no education on any of these things and are expected to make these impossible decisions that sometimes require them to try to get a dollar's worth of service out of 50 cents mm -hmm. or less. Mm -hmm. So it's just an impossible decision-making process that, that we're putting our elected leaders into. And um, that's part of what our program does when we go in and work with individual municipalities is let's work through this process and use our resources to help educate you, to help you make good decisions on what works best for your community. And that's one of the things I've found working in my role now for going on a year and a half. There's no cookie cutter answer for this. Every local community has different approaches that they need to implement. The, the, the key components are we need to create a sustainable cash flow to pay for the service, and we need to create a sustainable base of staff to provide the service. So money and people are really critical components to this, but how that's accomplished in any given community can vary quite a bit. Alan, across the state, the EMS in rural and urban communities, are, are, are they're both facing financial challenges, but it seems like rural communities have been hit particularly hard by this. Why do you think that the struggle is a little bit uh, more serious in rural areas? I think it's a combination of things. So it's a combination of population changes. So we obviously we have the demographic change that is starting to rely on 911 service more and more. Um, but in addition to that, we've seen from some of the reports of populations shifting out of some of these rural areas. And so some of those volunteers and, and whatnot are not always there. Uh, additionally, we have a pretty substantial group um, of EMS providers, you know, like like James that have worked in it for years, for decades, um, that eventually have to retire out of it. I mean, you can't do this until your 80s. And yet we do have individuals in their 70s that are taking the majority of calls for some of their local departments. And that's where we kind of see some of the differences between the rural areas and, and urban areas where you know the urban areas might have some of that uh, tax funding available. They obviously have some more higher call volumes to at least 
support a full-time service uh, versus a rural department that might have enough just for some part-timers uh, or even just have to be volunteer by itself. I mean, you we're talking a lot of different pieces of population changes, demographic changes, tax base is entirely different. Um, but one of the key things I've always liked to point out in Wisconsin especially is we have such a big tourism that comes into our state. Uh, whether you live in you know southern Wisconsin and you like to go vacation up north, you like to go hunting up north or fishing or coming from Illinois and out of state, you know, coming into Wisconsin and you're expecting if you have an accident or something happens when you're out, whether it be the North Woods, whether it be the South or the West or anywhere, you're expecting 911 to show up. But that tourism, you know, tourists in that sense, uh, vacationing is not paying into the same system. They're not paying taxes as part of it. Um, so as, as James mentioned, this is part of staffing issue and part of funding issue, kind of depending on where you are. You're listening to James Small and Alan DeYoung on Route 51. We're discussing the state of emergency medical services in rural Wisconsin communities and the struggle to provide timely response and appropriate care for patients. I'm Shereen Seward. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. Back on Route 51, I'm Shireen Seward, Allen D. Young, James Small are with us today. We're discussing EMS systems in Wisconsin and how a shortage of paramedics and funding is affecting the ability to provide care, especially in rural communities. Are departments closing? Have there been a number of departments that have actually shut down because of a lack of staff, volunteers? And, and James, you're nodding your head. Yes, yes. Yeah, just in, in recent I mean, just in 2023, we've seen a number of departments close. Um, there's been a number of departments that closed with short notice. And when I say short notice, I mean, maybe a few months notice that they realize that after, you know, we're at the end, there's no more doing this and suddenly are putting their local municipalities in a really difficult position to try to secure service in a very short period of time. You know, transitioning to a different type of service is probably a year, two year project not a two-month project. And what you're seeing happen in those situations is the small, predominantly volunteer services will suddenly close for any number of reasons. Generally, there's a funding issue, and then there's low staffing to go with that, and it just becomes untenable. And then the local municipalities put in this position of having to contract for service elsewhere, generally at a significantly higher cost that they didn't anticipate. Um, we've seen some instances where that's that increase is in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, $300,000, $400,000, more than what they were paying. And the communities don't have a long-term plan on how to pay for that. So in the short term, they might go out and borrow $400,000 to get them through the next year. But that's a significant load on a lot of these budgets to have an increase like that. And there's not a whole lot of tools available to local government to help pay for that short of going to referendums and, and things like that. Um, from the funding perspective, you're seeing the supplemental shared revenue program that was developed by the state legislature um, in this last session that will help with some of these lifts that they're making. Um, the legislature 
is providing a disproportionately higher amount of money to smaller communities with the supplemental program. So historically, townships have gotten very low, almost no money in the shared revenue programs. So you're seeing some of them getting significant amounts of money. Um, what they're getting, let's say they might have been getting $20,000 a year before in their shared revenue program. Those those townships might be getting $80,000 or $100,000 now with the new program. Um, is that a so good thing or is that a flawed formula? No, I think the I think the formula is a good thing. It's the cost of providing service. Your base cost is roughly the same to provide that basic level of capacity. You know, whether you have one ambulance in a in a city or one ambulance in out in a rural community, that base cost to staff an ambulance, if you have full time staff, is six hundred or seven hundred thousand dollars a year um, to run that service. That cost is the same regardless of if you're doing 100 calls or you're doing 500 calls. Disproportionately increasing the amount that goes to the rural communities kind of is starting to equalize what was, I think, identified as a pretty flawed formula over time. The original formula is over 50 years old. The people that developed it, there's nobody left that developed it. They're all dead sure. originally. Okay, mm -hmm. to give you an idea of what we're dealing with historically just at a municipal government funding level so not just ems but it's i mean your police has funding issues your public works has funding issues across the board and almost every municipality in the state has some kind of a funding issue because they don't have the ability to generate the revenue they need to operate their their current operations so these funds that are coming are going to be helpful there's an additional 25 million dollars going directly to ambulance services. Um, th that program will start in 2025. That'll be distributed across actually all EMS services. So ambulance services and emergency medical responder groups to the first responder groups are eligible for those funds too, to help pay for some of that cost. And it all helps, you know, it's all, if you, if you have a local ambulance service, that's predominantly fundraising and using billing revenue to do that, Billing revenue is covering pennies on the dollar, the cost of that service. So if you have a service that's running maybe 300 calls a year, so maybe a call a day, they're probably generating maybe at best $100,000 a year in that revenue. But if you think of the cost of that service being $500,000, either that funding has to come from the local municipality or it's got to be fundraised or some other, other version of that. In some cases, you have complete volunteers who are taking no pay. So that person's personally subsidizing the cost to that community. So that money is not going on the tax levy. So they're, they're essentially making your taxes lower by providing this service for free as a volunteer. I want to point out that the funding formula for EMS providers has changed over the years. I mean, you, you said, I mean, it's been, been a long time in the, in the 60s, about half of ambulance services were actually provided by morticians. I thought that was really um, an interesting statistic when I was doing some research on this. Uh, and then, you know, in 1978, federal funding stopped coming. So uh, the shift of funding and services to the local level has had a, an obvious impact on on what we see today. Alan, I'm curious what you think. Do you think it's time to rethink how EMS is operated and funded altogether? Does, do we need to see a major change here? I don't know that we're going to see a major change. You know, it's hard to make substantial changes like that. I mean, if there could be a major change, it would have to be how we see funding as as Wisconsin citizens. Like James said, we're you know this is being personally subsidized by the volunteers, but 
you know, when it comes to myself and needing 911, if I need it, I will gladly pay through my taxes to have that, you know, make sure it's fully staffed, make sure they're responding to calls in a timely manner. Um, that's critical. Like, you know, I've got kids and I worry about, oh, there's, you know, accident happen or something. You know, I want to make sure that that is the case. So if we're talking kind of a major change, that would be the major change is helping all Wisconsin citizens understand that they need to support either local funding measures, and I hate to say through referendums, or through budget increases. So when their local EMS department says, look, we need more money because we're scraping by here trying to do fundraisers just to operate 24-7, these, you know, uh, any type of city administrators and town officials, they need to be supportive of that. Local communities need to be supportive of that because if they're not, you see the opposite of what can happen where services are closing. You don't get service. Uh, the, the kind of what the one I talked about before of the family becoming frustrated with the response time, this county actually has three departments that are not responding to their calls during the week. And actually, it's not just one week in particular, it's every single week and has been for months and actually about a year or so at least that they're missing 50% or more of their calls. Um, and so those communities are suffering as well as the surrounding communities having to provide that mutual aid. So it's really a major change of how do we view this versus, you know, morticianers doing it before, you know, decades ago. That's not the same model that it is today. And we as, as Wisconsin citizens need to understand that really. At the heart of the staffing struggles is seems to be the fact that for decades, Wisconsin's EMS agencies have been built on is supported by volunteers. I mean, you've alluded to that a little bit. Why do we have so many agencies that are staffed by volunteers only? And I mean, how big a, a problem is that for some of these departments? Uh, James, we'll go to you. Well, I think the expecting a volunteer to provide a 24-7, 365 service for free is just not a thing anymore. I mean, I, I I think that's just where we are as a society. The cost of housing alone for a family is enormous. That's one of the challenges that I'm seeing up in the northern part of the state in particular, because with the pandemic, there was a migration of people to the Northwood, which drove the price of housing through the roof. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, so even up in, you know, like the Wausau area, you've seen this explosion in the cost of housing that you've just never experienced. And to expect somebody to be able to buy a $400,000 house and then volunteer and have a job that pays them $50,000 a year or something like that, that's just not a thing, right? So, you know, you've looked at the system that came up as through volunteerism. And when those departments started, most of them back in like the late 1960s or early 1970s, they might have done a dozen calls a year. There wasn't a 911 system in place for that. So somebody called a number and just said, hey, can I get an ambulance? And they said, sure. And like some people came out and they helped. We've gotten a lot more efficient at getting people into the system. It's very easy to call 911 and request service. With that came an explosion in the call volumes. And especially now with our aging population, we've had an explosion and um, you're seeing the call volume statewide go up by tens of thousands per year. Um, in that data. And every every region's experiencing increases in call volume. That's not just, I haven't had anybody come and say, you know, our call volume dropped in half. It's That's not happening. No. So the expectation by society 
is now that we have 24 seven coverage. And in, in some communities, they may have only ever been providing this coverage 50% of the time. And there just wasn't data to support it or the call volumes didn't expose it the way that they do now. But now we need to deal with that. Um, part of this whole system across the board is that there's really been a lack of accountability. If you think about it, if you think about that, almost half of our ambulance services aren't responding to calls 24 seven, 365. Every one of them has a requirement right at the first part of their operational plan that says you'll respond to a call 24 seven, 365. Okay. So there's, there's a, a basic accountability issue there, but that, that, that responsibility is shared by a lot of places. This, you know, the state office doesn't have the resources to go and audit services and make sure that there's accountability in place and what resources do they need to make sure that they're complying with that requirement. That's just, and it's been historically woefully underfunded at the state level. There's um, a variety of issues like with the funding at the legislature where now you're seeing a recognition of that. There's a very strong agreement, I think, among the members of the legislature that this is a critical issue that we have to solve. I'm not hearing any kind of partisanship in that this is a problem. There's a complete agreement in that. So I think you're starting to see that accountability come in. But then when you go with your local governing bodies, they have accountability in this too. They're the ones that are accepting having a service that's half the time or whatever it is that's not meeting their requirements because they don't have the funding to fix that. So they're in this impossible place and okay, so we're handling half our calls, that's better than no calls. And we don't have the funding to fix that. So we'll depend on our neighbors to come fix that. But when you've had so many of them do that and they end up in this regionalized area, um, that's where you see these system outages happening because none of them can respond to it. And there's been a lot of siloing too, even amongst the services where the services haven't looked to each other to create a coordinated effort. You've seen a lot of regionalizations going on recently, like let's say in the last five to 10 years. Um, regionalizations don't happen to save money. They, re they happen to create reliability and capacity in the system. So I think there's a misnomer that they're combining services and it's going to save money. And it will save money because it's going to be there's going to be a cost savings if you take two of them and put them together. And you might only have to make 50% of the lift in your municipality versus 100% of the lift because you're sharing that cost increase with another municipality, but it's not cheaper. There's no, there's none of these regionalizations are happening to save money. It's to save the increase, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And you can better share equipment. So you're going to have considerable savings sometimes in capital equipment purchasing, especially in fire department regionalizations, where instead of two engines in each station, you have one engine in each station. And that's a cost savings, you know, a 20 year lifespan of an engine at $700,000 to a million dollars. That's a considerable cost savings over those municipalities over that 20 years. But it's hard to feel that savings because it's just um, a cost not experienced in the future. So you're never going to see a decrease it's just how do you control what that increased cost is going to look like and how do you um, put these people in place to be successful, to keep this ambulance staffed and keep the wheels turning on it. And, you know, so going back to this accountability issue, I think everybody in the system bears some responsibility to ensure that we're living up to what the requirements are you know, that basic reliability standard that we have a first out ambulance in our community, 
and that's going to be available 24 7 365 and we're going to staff the 17,520 hours that's required to keep that going okay you mentioned that nowhere are calls going down alan why is that is it because we're getting older because we're i mean because we're relying on it more or too much or what's what's happening yeah uh, it's a combination of things and and to put it in perspective too so in the last four years uh call volumes in the state of wisconsin have gone up 21 percent uh and so you're talking hundreds of thousands of calls total you know over, over this time period and that has only gone up like james mentioned and so it's a it's a combination of things. I've heard a lot of non-emergent 911 needs. So you have somebody that you know needs to go inter facility transfers from one hospital to another, and they're relying on 911 to do that and not actually putting it in as a non-emergent interfacility transport. But they're dialing 911, the hospital is to get them from one to another. Now that's in some areas, but the additional piece to that, and what we've seen recently in some of the reports is the amount of falls that EMS is responding to. I mean, that's the biggest one, obviously, here. And working with uh, long-term care facilities, I feel like is one of those kind of solutions and how do we reduce that need? You know, why isn't that they can't pick them up? It's always, of course, a liability thing, but that puts strain on 911. So, you know, if as an assisted living, you have somebody fall, you call 911, you're not allowed to pick them off the ground. You just have really? to wait. Yeah, so it's it's a liability for the assisted living to have a CNA or a caregiver pick them up off the ground because that could result in additional harm. But yet now you're calling 911. And personally, I've even worked in assisted living that called 911 seven times in a single day just due to falls. And it's it, that has been increasing the call volumes across the state definitely is one of the major factors. And then, of course, aging population is definitely one of those factors as well. One thing about the uh, the aging population, when the majority of the population served year-round as elderly, EMS providers can make less money too because of Medicare and Medicaid caps. Um, so James, can you talk about the impact of that a little bit? Well, when you, when you look at your population base or the population that you're serving in these, it's not uncommon to have 50% or more of that to be a Medicare or Medicaid patient. So under those circumstances, there's caps on how much you can recover. Prior to some of these um, changes, you do a, a call for a Medicaid patient, you'd bill it out at, you know, $1,000, let's say, and you might recover $98 on that. Now, your cost of providing that service, the wow. cost of your staff on that, if you're paying them is more than $98. Sure to have them on that call. On a Medicare patient, that number was $368, something like that. So your your ability to recover the cost on this through billing isn't um, just isn't there, especially in the low volume systems. If you're not doing thousands of calls, you're not able to use billing alone as a means of providing that revenue. It helps. You're going to be able to get a, a portion of that revenue recovered. But to think about EMS as being a profit-making business, it's not. So when you when you look at it from that perspective, we need to think of it as being similar to our policing and similar to our public works, where it's something that's done by local government for the greater good of the entire people, and it's a service being provided and funding it appropriately from that perspective. The most concerning statistic I saw with the fall study is that Wisconsin is number one in mortality related to falls in the United States. We wow. have people, our people are most more likely to die from falls 
than anywhere else in the United States. James Small and Alan D. Young are our guests today on WPR, talking about the critical shortage of emergency services in some areas of Wisconsin and what can be done about it. I'm Shireen Seward. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. Back on Route 51, I'm Shereen Seward, Alan Young, and James Small are with us today on Wisconsin Public Radio discussing the shortage of EMTs and gaps in EMS services throughout the state. This is a difficult job. I mean, you're dealing with human beings in some of their worst possible times. They're sick, they're injured, they're uh, you know in, in horrific situations. How difficult is it to keep staff and provide the kind of emotional support that they need to stay on the job in these kinds of circumstances? Sure. Yeah. As, as we kind of talk about, you know, we, we're asking these individuals to come to the worst of the worst. Uh, you know, we, we don't ask that of anybody else kind of thing. Um, so, but we also don't provide as much, you know, wellness support, mental health uh, support as we possibly can. I mean, these are truly the worst of the worst situations. And these providers, we have to continue with that uh, memory throughout their entire life. So you could have one bad call that takes you completely away saying, look, I can't do this anymore. Uh, when others, you know, they've found ways to try to cope. But we, again, when you're, we're talking about volunteers, we're talking no benefits, no healthcare coverage, no mental health coverage, uh, no EAP programs or anything like that to support them to try to talk through this. Uh, I mean, most departments have a incident stress debriefing period, typically on a, a bad call, but even that doesn't always do enough because it's just a de debriefing trying to go through it and see who needs help. But the mental health component is huge. I mean, that's tremendous. And that's where we have seen people uh, choose to retire early because they can't do this. It doesn't matter the pay you know, aspect, it's mentally, how can an individual cope with this? I mean, again, you're, you're asking them to go to the worst of the worst situations. And sometimes, you know, you make an amazing save and you feel fantastic about it, but then there are times that you don't, or you can't, or there's nothing you can do. Um, and that's where it just, I don't know, it, it, you know, hurts you on the inside so much that you don't know if you can continue doing this. James, I want to ask you to weigh on in on this as well. Uh, I mean, how do you take care of yourself? How do people take care of themselves in these really difficult situations? It's a challenge. Um, I think we've identified that this is a significant issue in emergency response in general, whether it's law enforcement, firefighting, or EMS, nursing. There's a lot, or dispatchers even. Dispatchers are in the front row seat of everybody's tragedy in their jurisdiction. Um, and so are EMS providers. So when when somebody calls 911, they're at the most vulnerable place they may be in their entire life. Either they're sick or hurt in such a way that they can't get help from themselves and they need somebody to come and help them. And you're going to experience things working in emergency services that are just unimaginable. You know, you're living the headlines in your in your weekly newspaper of your community. And 
um, we've done a really poor job historically of dealing with the mental health side of this. There's a lot better recognition in the last 10 years and even more in maybe the last three years, especially since the pandemic, which really, I think, exasperated a lot of those issues. If, if you were on the border of having those issues, once a pandemic came, you do have them. And there's some statistics that say that as many as three quarters of emergency responders have some form of PTSD after um, being a responder for a period of time. And in our rural communities in particular, you're dealing with everyone, you, you know everybody. These are your neighbors, these are your friends, and you're going to have this firsthand seat in this horrible event that's happening with them and their family. Um, did you know that EMS providers are excluded from the post-traumatic stress disorder workers comp bill? What? In Wisconsin? No. There's um, there's currently um, workers comp protections for PTSD for law enforcement officers and full-time career firefighters. And when that was passed a few years ago, it excluded volunteer firefighters and all EMS providers are excluded from that. There is there is a move at the legislature to correct that. Um, I've seen legislation be introduced in this session to try to correct that and bring in dispatchers and medical examiners and all these other people who are being exposed to these things. But that's just one tool in many tools that we need. Um, a lot of people aren't going to need to go in down the workers' comp road in this. What they need is good, good peer support, good support within their departments, um, access to EAP so they can get, get some confidential services at times. And again, when you look at EAP programs, that's funding and access because we have a shortage of mental health providers. You know, just about everywhere in our workforce right now, there's a shortage of something and it's particularly bad in healthcare and mental health services is one area that's really strongly hit with that where you've seen this increase in demand and a lack of providers. Um, there's some excellent EAP programs operating in Wisconsin that operate in the municipal space. And there's some that are really struggling because they can't get providers to come in to provide that service. So, and it really depends on where you're at and what region you're living in, whether or not that's an issue. But I think that's something that we have to pay attention to. I think our municipal leaders need to be understanding of that too, is that, you know, you've got these services that might be only responding to calls half the time. But the people that are responding half the time are doing everything possible to make sure that that happens. And that puts a tremendous amount of stress on them. You may have somebody who works a full-time job Monday through Friday. So they work the 40 hour week or more. And then anytime they're not working, they might be home with a pager on just to make sure that the ambulance runs because there might be only three or four people sharing that burden. So that person might be providing four or 5,000 hours a year of coverage to that. And in a small community, that might be that they have to have somebody cover for them so they can go to the grocery store in the neighboring community to buy groceries. Mm. These are the stories that we're hearing in this. And these are real. These are happening today in communities across Wisconsin. And does that cause mental health issues for these people? Absolutely. They don't have any downtime. They don't have any time to reset. They've gone on this horrible call and now they've got this family burden that they're trying to work with. And then here's the next one. Mm -hmm. And um, they have, and they have a real job too, you know, and I don't, yeah, and I mean a real, a real job. job by a paying job mm -hmm. is what I mean. So, I mean, mm -hmm. that, that is a, that is an enormous, enormous burden. I, I, I can't imagine. Yeah. I think, I think the, the 
one of the really critical points that needs to be made in, in EMS is the reason the system hasn't completely collapsed yet is because of the spirit of the people in it. Because these are the most persistent, dedicated human beings that you're going to find. And they are doing everything they can to keep those wheels turning in their communities until they can't anymore. And then it hits a wall. So that's why you're seeing sudden collapses and things like that, because these people are doing everything they can to scrap together the ability to keep those wheels turning. Do you see, Alan, we, we talked about a little bit about the legislative stuff. Do you see anything that that perhaps colleges or technical schools could do to maybe help more people get into the field, help help encourage more people into that pipeline? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, our scope of practice and actual the curriculum for EMS is currently being looked at. Uh, it actually has not changed since 2011. Um, or about 2011, 2012, depending on which. But so they're looking at updating that now, but that doesn't necessarily help us at this moment um, in time. And part of that is it's part cost, part time to be able to go into a program. Uh, and depending on the area, you say, well, you can become an EMT, but you won't get paid for it. You need to volunteer your time for it. You have to do the work you know, for your community, you have to pay your way through. And then at the end of it, you're not, you're not get getting paid. any pay or in, even in some community, some of these rural communities, I know that are paying $10 an hour, $12 an hour. Well, it's still not like we know affordable to buy a house with that cannot be your full-time career in many communities. And not saying we ever need to move to a full full-time career all over the state necessarily but we need to look at least the dynamics of what we're asking of people we're asking them to volunteer we're asking them to go to school we're asking them to pay for it a lot of times and you know most people go to go to school to have a job at the end that pays them more than the cost of school um, so that's where i mean i i wish there was some solution to that maybe I, I mean i don't know one necessarily but i think there's some things we can do to leverage that of can can the state pay for costs because this is a public service that we're offering why doesn't the state say look we will pay for uh, any everyone or anyone to become an emt a basic emt so they can actually start doing transports and we can start uh, relieving some of the staffing but that's just one piece of it and so that's that's our you know that's a big ask of an individual when you know you're they're not making it a full-time career in many instances so for emts and paramedics who do make it a full-time career what's the pay like is it competitive pay or very rarely really <laughs> uh you're uh, only in some urban areas and i would say the bigger urban areas or some of the uh hospital run systems are the only ones that I would consider being able to pay a livable wage. Uh, but in many instances, even in, I'll say there's a department in Milwaukee County in that county area uh, without specifying them specifically, but they pay $19 an hour. And they said, this is the most we can pay because they just don't have any additional funding to increase it, to make it more competitive. Well, you can go to Quick Trip, you can go you know, to work at Costco for more, per hour and get bet full benefits and 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 so you're not like, seeing people at the at, you know at the worst times of their lives you're not going exactly. into critical scenes and i mean you think about the nature of the work i mean james in a perfect world what do you think you could, that could be done to get more people into the funnel and get them into this job 
I think we're we're seeing a lot more high school based programs come down the pipe. I know of several school districts that are offering EMT classes right as part of their curriculum in the high schools um, where you might take EMT in your senior year or EMR class. Um, there's a large increase in the technical college system of the dual enrollment programs where they might spend their senior year taking firefighting in EMT classes and then graduate um, being certified as firefighters and EMTs as part of their high school graduation requirements. Um, those programs have been taking off in the last few years. Um, firefighting and EMS has been um, approved as apprenticeships under the Workforce Development Apprenticeship Program. That just happened earlier this year. Um, so you're starting to see that shift of how do we deliver the training and can we do more remote-based training? We know that 13% of our services are over an hour from a training center to get the initial certification training. So even if you have people who are volunteers, that's a huge barrier. So how do we get as much training as possible to them? And that's something that we're working at at our office, at the Office of Rural Health, to try to bring in some solutions to that. So how do we get that reach? And there's a number of different things going on around the country in that regard, which I think might work here. But that again goes back to how do we fund it? How do we get it up and running? Because the cost to provide a course to just a couple people maybe in a certain region is enormous. So how do we how do we shift that cost or bear that burden? Especially if they're going to volunteer, we can't expect somebody to pay $5,000 to become an EMT so that they can then volunteer and then pay for the service through pancake breakfast. Senator Jesse James, he's a state senator, Republican of Altoona. He's quoted as saying, as far as I'm concerned, a police fire and EMS, EMS is the number one priority. I thought that was an interesting quote. Is that message getting through to other lawmakers or is he kind of a voice by himself? Yes. No, I would say that that's... Um very consistent with the my experience talking to legislators right now is that they know EMS is a critical issue. They know public safety in general is a critical issue in funding it because of the staffing shortages and the funding shortages. You know, and Senator James has that experience too of being a having been a fire chief and being a police chief and so on. Um, but my experience at the Capitol has been that that's a very consistent thought that EMS in this last legislative session in the shared revenue discussions, EMS became that discussion front and center. And I don't know if Alan had that same experience at the Capitol, but I had numerous, numerous requests for um, information from different legislators, myself at our office, after our study was published on the system. I had one day where I went to the Capitol and was in 21 different offices. This was This was a front and center issue that they all wanted to have firsthand information on and make good choices and help make good decisions. Um, I really think that the people of Wisconsin should be really proud of how they acted in regard to EMS. Because I know there's a lot of divide in our state over partisanship and politics and things like that. Our legislators really did a nice job on this going forward. Alan, was that your experience as well? You know, speaking with legislators, are, are they getting it? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that, that majority of them see EMS as, as a main priority. Uh, I think the only bit of disagreement would be just what do we do exactly? You know, where, where do we put the money or where do we put this or what do we what do we do here? And so and that that is a difficult question because there is no 
silver bullet to fixing this. And every community is different. So that means the solutions are all going to be different. Um, I mean, we talk about the obvious, the two issues, staffing and funding. I mean, that's those are the clear issues that we have. It's just how do we solve them um, by also being responsible with, you know, not necessarily just throwing tons of money at it, but having a plan in place of, look, we want to be able to build up this workforce because it provides this public service. It's something we basically have to do, or at least feel like we have to do. Otherwise, we have the latter of the situation where, you know, we don't have 911 medical response. Um, so for the most part, yeah, everybody seems very supportive of it. I think it's a matter of, you know, we've got funding through shared revenue, and that's going to municipalities to then decide how they want to spend it. We're hoping that, you know, EMS is a priority on their ends, too. That's the other take on this is legislators put it as a priority. Can now the municipal governments see it as also a priority when they're going through budgets? As people are right now in this, this time of the year, almost everybody's gone through their budget requests and saying, look, here's where we're at. And some, some of those are hard conversations. And so I think there still needs to be probably some further funds put into it. Uh, but I think we started off on a great foot here and really trying to help a lot of these communities. I think we just need to keep that momentum going because if we don't, it will spiral back down. Well, I want to thank you both for sharing your thoughts with us and talking about this very important issue. We'll continue to follow it uh, moving forward and see how that funding helps uh, stem the flow and, and solve the problem. You're listening to Route 51. Shereen Seward here extending a sincere thanks to our guests, James Small and Alan D. Young. Our producers are Joy Ratch Kramer and Ezra Wall. Our executive producer is Ezra Wall, who is also our on-air producer today. Thanks to John Altenberg for the Route 51 theme. You can hear the archive of today's program and our previous programs at wpr.org slash Route 51 and on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Wisconsin Public Radio.